I want hope to be one of the defining marks of my life. I want hope in some ways to influence and guide everything I do in my life. Now with hope, I don't mean some sort of a far-fetched dream we wish would come true. I wish a cold front would come through and bring five inches of rain with it. When I say hope, I mean the well-grounded, well-founded assurance Jesus will do what He has said He will do. Now, expectation is a key part of understanding hope. When we hope in Jesus, we expect Jesus to do something. Now, I always, to me, in my back of my mind, I always think saying I expect Jesus to do something, that it, it feels presumptuous to say we expect the King of kings and the Lord of lords to do something. And, and if it's just something we're making up on our own, then that would be presumptuous. But hope isn't we're expecting. We think it, and so we want Jesus to do it, so we expect He better do it. Hope is built upon who Jesus is and what Jesus has said. We we believe He is who He said He is. We believe He can do what He said He can do. Therefore, we expect, we anticipate, He will do all of those things. When we hope in Jesus, we expect Him to do what He has said He would do. And and for me, I want to have this hopeful expectation in every area of my life. I want to pray in hope. The psalmist in Psalm 5.3 says he will direct his prayers to the Lord every morning. He will present his prayers to God and then be on the watch. Psalm 5.3 the idea is he will pray every day and then he will be on the watch for the ways in which God is going to answer his prayers. He anticipates God answering his prayers. That's how I want to pray. I want to preach in hope. Every time I stand to declare God's word, I want to have a sense of expectation that Jesus is going to work through the preaching To save the lost, restore the prodigals, heal broken hearts, set captives free, open spiritually blind eyes, sanctify the saints, and raise the spiritually dead to new life in Christ. The Apostle Paul told the Romans in Romans chapter 1 that when he went to them, he came because he had desired to impart some gift to them and he'd expected to have fruit among them as he had in other places. He, He hoped his preaching of the word would make a difference in their lives. I want to have that kind of a hope in my preaching. I want to live in hope. I want to have such an expectation of Jesus working in me, through me, and for me to accomplish His will in the world. That no matter where I go or what I'm doing, I anticipate encountering someone I can minister to in the name of Jesus through the power of the Spirit for the glory of my Father. I want to give hope. In an overly general sense, there are two kinds of people in the world. Those who drain you and those who refresh you. Those who discourage you and those who encourage you. Those who cause despair and those who inspire hope. I want to be the kind of person who refreshes, encourages, and inspires hope in others. And my desire to be a person of hope motivates me to pray For our church to be a place of hope. Our sign says we are a a beacon of hope. 
This isn't intended to be a cutesy sort of saying. It's intended to be a reality. Every day, I pray three specific requests for our church, no matter what else I do or don't pray. I pray for God to make us a gospel mission. Make us a gospel mission who gives and goes, sends and supports to ensure the gospel is fully proclaimed in Gaiman to the ends of the earth. By fully proclaimed in Gaiman, what I mean is that every person in Gaiman has an opportunity to hear a legitimate gospel presentation and make an informed decision about whether or not they want to receive Christ and it not be something goofy they've heard or they never heard about that Jesus guy. For God to make us a gospel mission and what we do here with the gospel impacts the nations at large. I pray God would make us awed at Him. To make us a people who are awed by His greatness, His goodness, His power, His worthiness, His glory, and His majesty. And to be, for us as a people, to be so awed by these things in God, it is seen in everything we do, everywhere. Not just in this building when we gather together. It's not just seen here, but out there. Everyone would see our awe of God because of how we live in the world. And then I pray for God to make us a beacon of hope. And my prayer for us to be a beacon of hope is, is twofold. First, for us as a church to have a, a culture of hope. What I mean is, when every one of us who calls this their church home, that we would come and gather together with a sense of, of hope, anticipation, and expectation of what Jesus is going to do in us and through us and for us every single time we gather together. And second, for the people of our community to know this is a place where they can come and they would find hope, help, and healing through Jesus Christ. Now the key to all of this hope in any of its forms is through Jesus. The life, death, and resurrection of Jesus is what gives us our hope. Jesus was always meant to be our source of hope. Jesus is always meant to be the one who gives us our hope. We'll see this in our passage tonight. Open your Bible to Isaiah chapter 9. It should be page 523. When you find that, I'm going to ask you to stand to honor the reading of God's Word. I'm going to read Isaiah 9 verses 1 through 7. But there will be no more gloom for her who was in anguish. In earlier times, he treated the land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali, with contempt. But later, he will make it glorious by way of the sea on the other side of the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. You will multiply the nation. You will increase their joy. They will rejoice in your presence as with the joy of harvest. As people rejoice when they divide the spoils. For you will break the yoke of their burden and the staff on their shoulders. The rod of their oppressor as, the land, as, the, as at the battle of Midian. For every boot of the marching warrior in the roar of battle. And the cloak rolled in blood will be for burning. Fuel for the fire. For a child will be born to us. A son will be given to us. And the government will rest upon his shoulders. His name will be called Wonderful Counselor. Mighty God. Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of His government or peace on the throne of David over 
and over his kingdom to establish it, to uphold it with justice and righteousness. From then on and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of armies will accomplish this. The title of the message tonight is Jesus, Our Hope. Let's pray. Father, we love you tonight. We praise you for your grace and your goodness. We thank you for all you've given, done for us in our life. Thank you for the opportunity we have tonight to gather, how to sing your praise, to study your word, to pray. Know you hear and care about what's going on in our lives. Lord, we do want to be a people of hope. Father, we, we want this church to be a beacon of hope in our community. Lord, as we look around the world, if there's one thing we see is that people lack hope. And Lord, this this place can be somewhere where they know they can find Jesus. They know they can find they can find here what they cannot find anywhere else in the world. Father, I pray tonight that as we study this passage, you would renew and restore our hope. You would search us and try us. And Lord, if there's anything, anything of cynicism in our hearts, let your Holy Spirit burn it from our lives tonight. If there's anything of, of despair and doubts, let your Holy Spirit burn that from our lives tonight. And let us be a people who take what Jesus says at face value and who live with a constant anticipation of seeing Him do what He said He would do in us and through us and for us. Fill me tonight with Your Holy Spirit. Give me clarity of thought, clarity of speech, that I would speak Your words and Your ways for Your glory. Use this time to strengthen us. Use this time to encourage us. Use this time to renew us. Use this time to... To buff off any dirt and dust and junk we've got in our lives. Send us out to be lights that shine brightly in a dark and a dying world. We ask in Jesus' name and for His sake. Amen. You may be seated. Isaiah 9 is a continuation of the prophecy that actually began in chapter 7 and was continued in chapter 8. In case you haven't been here, the nation had turned from God. Chapter 8, we saw they had... They were listening to occultic wisdom and not God's word. They had rejected God's plan and they were making plans and trusting in their own plans. Isaiah 8 ends in a, in a dark and a gloomy place. The people are in verse 22. They are in distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be driven into darkness. So the people of God, because of their rejection of God, their rebellion against God, they're facing judgment from God and they are roaming the earth in anger, despair while cursing God because they have been completely conquered by the Assyrians as judgment from God. And then we move into chapter 9 and where Isaiah, despite the judgment of God, Isaiah sees a day coming when God would lift the people out of darkness and despair. Isaiah 9, what we're going to look at tonight was a shining message of hope and the agonizing despair of the world that was coming upon them. God would would do these things. He would give them this hope by fulfilling his ultimate promise of sending his Messiah into the world. Hope from God or hope from the Messiah is really the the main thrust of this passage. It is hope that comes because the Messiah is coming or because the Messiah has come. 
So for us, the main idea tonight, Jesus is our hope and Jesus gives us hope. Jesus is our hope and he gives us hope. In this passage, what we're going to look at, we see four ways Jesus is our hope and four ways Jesus gives us hope. Now, it's four total, not four plus four is eight. There's just four altogether. So number one, Jesus gives us light for darkness. Isaiah starts in verses one and two. There will be no more gloom for her who was in anguish and anguish in earlier times. He treated the land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali with contempt. But later on, he will make it glorious by way of the sea on the other side of the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in a dark land, the light will shine upon them. He tells them the days of gloom, which is how chapter 8 ends. The gloom and the darkness and the anguish, those days are not going to stay on forever. A day would come when the darkness and despair would be a thing of the past. Now, when the Assyrians would launch their attack into Judah, the land of Naphtali and Zebulun would be the first to feel their wrath. They would be so totally conquered, they would become a home for the Gentiles, leaving the areas, the regions in in deep spiritual darkness for generations to come. And as bad as this was, and as bad as this was going to be, there was coming a day when a great light would shine on this really dark region. And those who walked in this darkness, they would see a great light. Those who lived in the dark land, a great light would shine upon them. And what this meant was there would come a day when the Messiah would wipe away the gloom and He would disperse the darkness brought on by Gentile domination. Genesis, I'm sorry, Mark, nope, it's going to be a long night. Matthew chapter 4 records the start of Jesus' earthly ministry. This is the chapter where Jesus goes into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan. After Jesus successfully resists Satan's temptations, he leaves and he begins his earthly ministry. And he begins his earthly ministry in the region of Zebulon and in the region of Naphtali, lands that were Gentile areas at this time. And Matthew then says this was done to fulfill what was spoken of by Isaiah the prophet. And then he quotes verses 1 and 2 in this chapter. Those lands would live in darkness for a very long time, but then Jesus would come and he would dispel the darkness with his light. Jesus is the great darkness dispelling light. Jesus came to give light to all who are held in the bondage of darkness. Jesus came to give light to those who are constantly living under the shadow of death. Jesus is our hope and He gives hope by giving us His light for our darkness. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. The one who follows me will not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. Now the picture of walking in darkness is many. There are many ideas associated with this. One is a life lived without knowing Jesus. Right? What Jesus did for us or what Jesus created and saved us to be. Those who don't know the Lord. They don't know Jesus. They don't know what He has done. They don't know He has a plan and a purpose for their life. And so they, they live in darkness. It pictures someone not really knowing where they're going in life or what it is they're supposed to be doing. They're just sort of drifting here and there, going on and about in life. They're, they're living in darkness. Living in darkness is living in the darkness of sin without really knowing how much our sin is an offense against God. 
Right, Those who, who live constantly and continue a life of rebellion against God and they either assume God doesn't care or it's no big deal or they never take thought of it. They are living in the darkness of sin. And this is how we all are naturally. Apart from Jesus, all people live in spiritual darkness. And when we live in spiritual darkness, our hope is limited to this life. Our hope is tied up. And limited by what sinful man can do for us. Or our hope is limited by or tied up in what we can do for ourselves. What we can fix and accomplish in our own lives. So we stumble through life. Not really knowing or understanding there is anything beyond this life. Beyond our limitations. According to God's word, this is basically a hopeless existence. However, Jesus came so we wouldn't have to live this way. He came so we could live In his light. Do we as a people, do we understand, truly understand who Jesus is and what he has done for us? We can. Jesus can give us his light so we don't have to walk in the darkness of not knowing who God is, what God is like and what he has done for us in Jesus, our Savior. Can we say with absolute certainty we know what Jesus has created and saved us to be and to do? We're all Here for a reason, for something specific. We're saved in Christ Jesus to do the good works which the Lord planned beforehand. Do we know those things? We can. Jesus can give us His light so we don't have to walk in the darkness of a a purposeless or coming up with our own idea in our existence. Could the life we live be described as righteous, holy, and true? Like Jesus is righteous, holy, and true. It can because of Jesus. He can give us light so we don't have to walk in the darkness of sin. Do we feel like we're stumbling and groping our way through life? We don't know what we're doing. We're just sort of drifting from place to place and thing to thing, hoping something will click in our lives. We don't have to because of Jesus. Jesus can give us his light so we don't have to walk in the darkness of a purposeless existence. This world is spiritually dark and it will be until Jesus Jesus returns. However, just because the world around us is dark does not mean we have to live in this darkness. Through Jesus, we can live and walk in his light despite all the spiritual darkness around us. Jesus is our hope and he gives us hope by giving us his light for our darkness. Secondly, Jesus gives us joy in misery. What God said about the Assyrians coming to conquer the people, it brought demoralizing thoughts of of sadness and fear. There was little left in their life that that resembled hopeful or, or happiness. There was little joy. But there was a promise given. The promise was first... Verse 3, that God would multiply the nation. And then secondly, that he would increase their joy. Now, I love how the joy of the Messiah and the joy he brings is described. First, it is they will rejoice in your presence. It is in the presence of the Lord. It's like Psalm 1611, where we're told there is the fullness of joy in the Lord's presence. And at his right hand are pleasures forevermore. This pictures the people being restored to full fellowship with God and the joy this brings into their hearts. 
It is the joy of harvest. I remember they lived in an agrarian society and were totally dependent on the harvest for their livelihood. There was no supplemental income. There was no crop insurance to fall back on. Their financial future wholly depended on the success of the crop. This should give us an idea of the kind of joy they would have after a successful harvest time. Things had grown, things had produced fruit, they had harvested it and were ready to sell. What joy this would bring to their heart. This is the kind of joy the Messiah would bring. Finally, it's the joy of victory. Right? As people rejoice when they divide the spoils. The picture of soldiers being victorious in battle and being able to divide the riches of the enemy they had defeated. These are powerful pictures, the kind of joy we can have in our lives because of Jesus. Joy is something seems to be missing from many in our world today. Joy being missing from many people's lives is tragic because Jesus is our hope. And He gives us hope by giving us joy from misery. I love this verse. It said, though you have not seen Him, you love Him. And though you do not see Him now, you believe in Him. And in this you rejoice, greatly rejoice, with joy inexpressible and full of glory. Do we rejoice with an inexpressible joy that is full of glory? We can, and in fact we should, because Jesus gives us joy in misery. Now what's great about the Peter passage here is it is in the context of suffering. The verses immediately before this talk about them rejoicing despite the fiery trials they are experiencing. So can you imagine going through the worst time of your life and still having joy? Not not saying the hard time isn't hard. Not saying the miserable time isn't miserable. But as the Apostle Paul says in Corinthians, that, that always rejoicing even though we're suffering. This life, this life will always be hard. This life will always bring to us pain and loss and misery. Despite this, we can have joy because of Jesus. We see this all throughout God's Word. Think about the apostles in the book of Acts. They would get arrested. They would get threatened. They would get beat down. And then they would leave rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering for Jesus. Several times in the book of Philippians, the Apostle Paul talks about being filled with joy, rejoicing always, he says. And yet he's writing from a Roman prison where he awaits to see if they will release him or they will execute him. Even in a Roman prison, the Apostle Paul had a joy circumstances of life could not take away. The apostles didn't have that joy because they were apostles. Paul didn't have that joy because he was Paul. They had that joy because of Jesus. You and I have the same access to the same Jesus who gives the same hope and the same joy that they had. It is possible for us to have an inexpressible joy that's full of glory no matter how bad things are. In our lives. It's possible because of Jesus. Jesus is our hope, and Jesus gives us hope by giving us joy in misery. So Jesus gives us His light for our darkness, He gives us joy for misery. But Jesus also gives us peace 
in conflict. Verse 4 says, You will break the yoke of their burden and the staff of their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor, as at the battle of Midian. Now, that last part, as at the battle of Midian, is a reference to Judges 7. It tells the story of the Midianites. They had conquered and oppressed Israel. And God worked through an ordinary man named Gideon to defeat the Midianites. Now, if you remember the story, it was a miraculous victory. Gideon summoned an army and a great number came, but God said the number was too big. That if He gave them the victory with the number of men they had, that they would think they did it. They would think it was because of their great warriors and their awesome. So God went through a series of events to whittle their army down from several thousand to three hundred. A number so small they would know if there was a victory. They would know it had to be God that had done it. So what Isaiah is saying here is just as God gave Gideon victory over the Midianites, so he would give victory to his people. He says in verse 5 that this victory would be so complete that every boot of the marching warrior would roar in battle. In other words, they would stop and the cloak rolled in blood would be for the burning, for fuel, for the fire. And what this pictures is the victory would be so complete they would take all the weapons of war and all the equipment used for war and all the things that showed evidence of war and they would be destroyed and never created again. It pictures a time when there would be complete and perfect peace. When there would no longer be war or the suffering from war. It pictures a time when there would be perfect peace on the earth. As we look at the world today, it's clear this has not been realized. We wonder, does this mean Jesus failed? He has come. The Messiah has come. The Prince of Peace has come. And yet this peace does not exist in the world in which we currently live. Well, Jesus has not failed. What it means is that many times in Old Testament prophecies, there were multiple fulfillments. Sometime it meant something immediately. And then it would mean something later. And then at times it would mean something immediately, something later, and then something even later. And that's what we see here. Some of what Isaiah was talking about here was fulfilled when God overthrew the, uh, the Assyrians. And delivered Jerusalem. Some of this was further fulfilled when Jesus came. And he died on the cross for our sins and rose again. But the ultimate fulfillment of this promise will not come. Until Jesus returns the second time. And when Jesus returns the second time. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will no longer be death. There will no longer be mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. In this life, all of that stuff's going to exist. There'll be death, there'll be sorrow, there'll be suffering, there'll be crying, there'll be pain. Gosh, in many ways, death, sorrow, crying, suffering sounds like the way we might summarize the last couple of years. Death, sorrow, suffering, and pain are have been a part of life since the fall of Adam and Eve, and they were expelled from the garden, and it will continue until the day Jesus returns. Kind of what we've gone through for the last few years has, has amplified it, or at least amplified our awareness of feeling these things. And if we aren't careful, the amplification of our feeling of these things can decimate our hope and, and leave us demoralized. I mean, as we look at the world right now, do we feel despondent? Do we feel demoralized? Do we feel maybe even we're despairing right now? 
Because of Jesus, we can have good cheer. Even in the midst of all that's going on, because there is hope in Jesus. There is coming a day where there won't be death, and there won't be sorrow, and there won't be crying, and there won't be pain, and there won't be pandemics, and there won't be elections, and there won't be riots, and there won't be any of the things that are constantly on the news and abound in our lives right now. None of those things exist in heaven. We can have hope in conflict. We can have peace in conflict. Because we know this life is not all there is. We can have peace in conflict. Because we know that while in this life we may have tribulation. Jesus has overcome. And there is coming a day when these things will be gone. Jesus is our hope. And He gives us hope by giving us peace in our hearts, in our souls, even in the midst of great conflict. And then finally, Jesus gives us Himself. Jesus gives us light for darkness. Jesus gives us joy in misery. Jesus gives us peace in conflict. And then Jesus gives us Himself. Verse 6 is... Probably the most familiar verse in Isaiah 9. It's one of the more recognizable Christmas passages. For a child will be born to us. A son will be given to us. And the government will rest upon his shoulders. And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor. The Mighty God. Eternal Father. The Prince of Peace. Because of him there will be no end to the increase of the government or peace. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness. From then on and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of armies will accomplish this. Such a great passage and it teaches us much about the greatness of Jesus and the hope we have in him. The description of the coming Messiah is significant. It begins with a child will be born to us. Reminding us Jesus was born for our benefit. Jesus came, He was born, to give light in the darkness, joy in misery, peace in the conflict, and to give Himself for our sakes. Not only was Jesus the Messiah born to us, but He is also a Son which is given to us. Now, both descriptions are significant. The child born seems to reflect the humanity of Jesus, that He would be born of a virgin, hearkening back to Isaiah chapter 7 and verse 14, that a son would be born. But also, the idea that a son given seems to testify to his deity. That it's reminiscent of John 3.16, that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Now again, I think this harkens back to Isaiah 7 and 14. The, the son who was given, who would be called Emmanuel, God with us. Now this of course was fulfilled at the birth of Jesus. So Jesus is the God man who was born, who was given to us, came for us. And then he's given these famous names, the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the eternal father, the prince of peace. And these things, these names all reveal why Jesus is our hope, why Jesus gives us hope. Uh, we aren't going to look at these tonight. I didn't think there would be time for the amount of notes I had from them. We'll look at them again in a couple of weeks. We'll pick up right there and talk about those. 
So tonight I just want to end by reminding us we we can have hope because Jesus is our hope. He gives us hope by giving us Himself. We would be filled with hope immensely if Jesus was only one of these things. If He was only willing to do one of these things for us. But the great promise of Isaiah 9 is Jesus is all of these things. He wants to give us all of these things. He wants to give us His life. He wants to give us His joy. He wants to give us His peace. He wants to give us Himself. He is the great treasure that we receive. And if we truly know that, if we truly understand what these things mean, we cannot help but be people of hope. So would we say, would we say hope is a defining characteristic of our lives? I mean, are we legitimately people of hope? Do we pray in hope? I mean, we pray. We pray here at church. We we pray at home. But is there, when we pray, a sense of anticipation at what Jesus is going to do in response to our prayer? Do we live in hope? I mean, do we live with a sense of expectation? Jesus is going to work in us and through us and for us in some way to accomplish His will in the world every day of our lives. Do we give hope? Every day we interact with a large number of people. How do those people leave the conversations and the time they've had with us? Do people leave us drained or do they leave us refreshed? Do they leave us encouraged or do they leave us discouraged? Do they leave us despairing or do they leave us inspired to have hope? Is our church, is it a beacon of hope? I mean, do we who make up the Northridge Free Will Baptist Church, do we have a sense of anticipation at what Jesus is going to do every time we gather in our gather together. He is going to do something in us and through us and for us. Does our community see us, see our church as a place where they can find hope, help, and healing through Jesus? We should all be able to say yes all of these questions. And if we can't say yes to these questions, we should all want to say yes to these questions. And and that's, I think, a, a valid place to start. Being a person of hope in the world is hard. I mean, it's easy to say Jesus gives us all of these things. That's It's all true. It's all exciting. It's all great. But to to live that out and to have that kind of hope all throughout our lives, all throughout our day, is far more difficult than it might sound to be. So if we're not, at the moment, those kind of people, that kind of hope in our lives, that's fine. But do we want to be those kind of people? Do we want to have that kind of a hope? Because here's the thing, and here's why I say do we want to. I know people, and so do you. They don't want 
to be people of hope. They they enjoy being what they call realists, right? When you have hope, they're going to give you all the reasons your hope won't come to pass. They enjoy being the wet blanket on your fire for Jesus and telling you not to get carried away and not to go too far and not to take it too seriously. They they enjoy being the person to to knock your legs out from underneath you, to, to give you that cold dose of truth you desperately need in your life. There are people like that. God help us not to be those people. And if we are, Do we want to change? Because we ought to. We ought to want to be people who give hope that when people are around us, they are energized, encouraged, strengthened, particularly about the goodness, the grace, the majesty, and the power of our God. Do we want to be a people of hope? We should. And if we want to, but we're not, then this time tonight is a great opportunity to begin to cry out and say, Jesus, you are my hope. You give us hope. Give me hope. Make me a person of hope. And let's cry out for that until Jesus changes our hearts and changes our minds, changes our lives, until we are the most hope-filled people anyone knows I've just about decided and I was praying about this this week I think I'm just I would be okay if everyone I knew just thought I was delusional because of how much hope I had and how much hope I talked about and how much I spoke in hope and prayed in hope and lived in hope they would say there is just something wrong with him I'm okay with that I would rather hope too much in my Jesus, then hope too little. I would rather believe Him for too much than believe Him for too little. I want hope to abound in me and through me and exude out of everything I am and everything I do. And I pray our church is that kind of a church. Let's pray. Father, we love You tonight. Thank You for Your grace and Your goodness, for Your love and Your mercy. Help us to be people of hope. Let us be filled with the hope Jesus gives. And let that be evident in every area of our lives. Father, let it come out in our speaking. Let it come out in our praying. Let it come out in how we interact with other people. Lord, there are plenty of people in the world who are going to give a daily dose of reality. Who are going to give you the cold, hard truth. The world doesn't need any more people like that. The world needs people who believe and hope in the greatness, the power of Jesus. Make us those people. When people are around us, God, let them be excited and energized and hope-filled. When people come to our church, let them feel an atmosphere of hope at what, what Jesus is going to do In our midst, when people hear us pray, let them hear us pray as people who believe that Jesus is alive and active and works in the world today to save the lost, restore the prodigal, sanctify the saint, heal broken hearts, set captives free and raise the spiritually dead to new life. 
Let everything we do and all we say in every aspect of our lives testify. We believe Jesus is who He says He is. We believe Jesus can do what He says He can do. And we just absolutely anticipate that at every moment of our lives. We ask this in Jesus' name and for His sake. Amen.